Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, and we are going to look at verses 19 through 39 this morning. This passage breaks down into three sections. And just to help you get some idea of where we are going, I've given a little title to each one of these sections. The first one in verses 19 through 25, the writer describes for us a resource which brings about certain responsibilities. Resource which creates responsibility. Then in verses 26 through 31, he describes a presumption which results in God's punishment And then in verses 32 through 39, he describes a perseverance which results in the protection or preserving of the soul. Okay, I hope there's enough alliteration in there to satisfy all of you literary types. Well, let's read verses 19 through 25, and then we will discuss the resource which creates responsibilities for us. Verse 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter... The holy of holies is the way that should be translated, if you have a New American Standard. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look at verses 19 through 21. You'll see that twice he uses the expression, since we have describing the resource that we have in Christ. And then in verses 22 through 25, three times he uses the little phrase, let us, to indicate the responsibility we now have to use these resources that he's given us. It says in verse 19 that the first resource we have is confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. It's referring here to the confidence or the boldness or the fearlessness with which we can approach God. He says we have confidence to enter the very Holy of Holies, to come into the very presence of God, not with fear, not with trembling, not with trepidation, but with confidence and courage and boldness, knowing that when we approach him, he will accept us, he will receive us, he will be delighted with us, he will uh, receive us warmly and grant the requests and desires of our hearts. We can have the confidence to come in to his presence at any time. The word that he uses here for entrance is a word that was used at this time to refer to someone who was granted an audience with a king, a royal audience. It says we have that kind of access. We can have an audience with the king of the universe anytime we choose. Now, this is in contrast to what is normally the case. Remember the story of Esther, who even though she was the wife of the king, When she approached him unbidden, she approached him with fear and with trembling because she did not know how she would be received. You just couldn't barge into the presence of a a monarch like that. And yet the writer is telling us we can have confidence, courage to approach God at any time. Now it makes it clear that the reason we can do so is because of the blood of Jesus. In other words, we have no right to come to, to the Father on our own. 
We have no capacity, no reason to approach God with anything other than sheer terror if it were not for the blood of Jesus. He really pictures us like the high priest. Remember the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple carrying the blood which was not his own, the blood of another sacrifice. The writer is saying to us here is that we can come into the presence of God in the same way that the, that the high priest did. If we bring with us the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be ushered into his presence at any point. That's the only reason that men can approach God is because of the blood of Christ. Now, this is why the scriptures are so insistent that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Now, the point is there's nothing arbitrary about that. It wasn't simply God sort of picking this option out of any number of choices, but because man has no right to approach God unless his sin is dealt with. And in order for man's sin, which blocks his access to God and to God's life to be dealt with, it took a perfect sacrifice. And only the Son of God could offer a sacrifice which would give man access to God. There is absolutely no other way to come to God other than by the blood of Jesus. Regardless of what anyone says, this is one of the unalterable facts of the universe. Jesus himself was the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, I am the means of access that men have to God. Uh, when Frank Peretti was here several weeks ago, Chris Riddell uh, told us a story that Peretti used to illustrate this concept. He uh, described this family was driving down a highway, and in, in, in this family, in the back seat, was a girl who was a, a extremely allergic to, to a bee sting. And while the family was driving down the road, a bee flew into the car. The girl naturally was very frightened, but the father managed to reach out and to grab the, the bee and to hold it in the palm of his hand until the bee stung him. And with the, the venom and the poison of the bee expended in the hand of the father, he released the bee, no longer of any harm to his daughter. And that's a simple illustration of what's happened to us in Christ. He has taken the wrath of God in our place. He's taken the judgment that should rightly have fallen upon us. And the sting of death has been spent on him. And therefore, by his blood, we can come without any fear into the very presence of God, knowing that, that all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of the things that shame us, that embarrass us, that humiliate us, that fill us with remorse and regret that all of those things have been forgiven and forgotten and covered by the blood of Christ. And we can come boldly into the presence of God at any time. He uses the, uh, the word way there in verse uh, 20, a new and living way. That word way is the same word that's used for a highway or a roadway. Highway or a roadway is a means of, means of access. They're working right now on the Horseshoe Bend uh, Summit. And when that new highway is completed, there will be an improved means of access to the vacation and recreation lands of the north. Now, they'll have a little ribbon-cutting ceremony. Be a ribbon stretched across that, uh, that highway. And that ribbon stretched across that highway will indicate that this means of access is not accessible. It's not available to the public. But then some dignitary will, will clip that ribbon. And the, and the way then will be open to, to everyone to use that new and improved means of access. And that is what's happened to us in Christ. Before his death, access to God was, was, uh, was closed off to us. We had no means of access to him. Remember, only the high priest could go into the presence of God, and he could only go in once a year. But the writer points out that when Christ 
died, his body symbolically was the curtain that shielded the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, from the world. And when his body was broken, the veil was torn. Remember the symbolism on the very, at the very moment that Christ died, the, the veil that closed off the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Not from bottom to top as man would do it, but from top to bottom. God himself making clear that the death of his son had now opened the way to everyone who chooses to come by the blood of Christ to approach God with confidence and courage. Then the second great resource he says we have in verse 21 is a great priest who is over the house of God. Remember back in chapter 3, he told us that we are the house of God. This is one of the common errors that modern Christians make, thinking that church buildings represent the house of God. They do not. The New Testament is very clear that we ourselves are the house of God. We are the dwelling place of God. We are the place where God comes to take up a residence. That's why our sign out front says this is, does not say this is Cole Community Church. It says Cole Community Church meets here. Because you and I, we are the house of God. And the second resource, he says, we have is a great priest. Not only do we have access to the presence of God, but we have a great priest. One who has dealt with the issue of sin. And someone who beyond that is available to us to be a personal counselor and friend. If you remember back in chapter 5, the writer was very clear when he pointed out that the role of a, of a priest was not just to offer sacrifice for sin, but it was to deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, to deal gently with us when we do things that are foolish and misguided and when we do things that we think are right at the time but turn out to be terribly wrong-headed. What we need at that time is a priest who is sympathetic, who understands. He describes Christ as a great priest. In other words, he's good at what he does. He's terrific priest. And he's available to us to be a counselor and guide and a comfort and resource and companion. A friend of mine uh, who lives down in the Bay Area has a friend who's the CEO of an uh, electronics firm in the Silicon Valley, and he illustrated the kind of access that the writer is talking about here by describing one of his uh, recent visits to that, to the headquarters of that firm. He went in and to the front desk area, and there was a security guard, and there was a big imposing reception desk, and there was a check-in procedure that he had to go through. His name had to be on a pre-approved list, and he had to flash some ID. And, and when that happened, he was, he was given a badge. He wore on the outside of his clothing, and that gave him access to the headquarters building. But then just as he was clipping that badge on the, his shirt pocket, the CEO of the company himself came out to greet him in the lobby, and took him by the arm, and ushered him into the inner sanctum of the headquarters. And he described, that's, that's the kind of access that we have with God. We not only have a, the right to enter, we have someone who personally will take us by the hand and, and bring us to God and be what we need. Now, because of these two resources, access to God and a great priest, he says we have three responsibilities in verses 20 through, through 25. First of all, in 22, let us draw near. Secondly, in verse 23, let us hold fast our confession, thirdly, in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So our responsibilities are to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider how. Let's look at each one of these in turn. When he says, let us draw near in verse 22, I think what he's saying to us is, first of all, we have access to the Father. We possess that. We have the confidence to enter. So what he says in verse 22 is, let's use it. 
Let's take advantage of that access. Let us, he says, draw near to God with a sincere heart or a true heart which has been cleansed and purified. In other words, let us believe that what the Scripture says about us is true, that we can come to God in absolute purity, utterly and completely cleansed, perfectly and for eternity from all of our sin. And he says, believe that. Your hearts have been sprinkled. Your bodies have been washed. He uses the perfect tense in describing those actions there. Meaning that our hearts have in the past been sprinkled. And that has abiding results into the present. So our hearts have been sprinkled clean in the past with the result that they are now clean. Remember the sacrifice of Christ was something which was offered for all sins for all times. Even the sins that I haven't even dreamed of yet have been covered by the blood of Christ and forgiven. My heart has been purified from those sins. And therefore, he says, let us draw near. Use the access that you have been given to God. He uses the present tense of the verb draw near, meaning continually, steadily, quietly, persistently draw near to God. Take advantage of the offer of his resources to help you with all of the demands of daily life. So we're going to do this all throughout the day. In other words, we begin to begin to see God as our constant companion and our constant resource, not just for a 10 or 15 minute block of time in the morning, but repeatedly throughout the day when any there, whenever there's any kind of demand or call made upon our resources of character or strength to draw near to God at that moment for the, for the resource, to exercise patience with my children when they're pushing me to the brink. That's a time to draw near. Uh, to exercise self-control in a discussion when I find myself tempted to become angry and ill-tempered. Draw near at that moment for the strength to exercise self-control. A friend of mine uh, manages an office here in, in Boise. And several weeks ago, he had to fire someone, which is one of the unfortunate things that bosses have to do. But his desire was to handle this in a way that was, was godly and Christ-like and pleasing to God with, with firmness and yet at the same time with gentleness and understanding. And so he reminded himself of God's availability. He thought of the verse in Psalm 16, which says that because you are at my right hand, I will not be shaken. He reminded himself that God was at his right hand and would walk with him into that conference room and help him in that conversation. And what he remembers praying is that after he had finished asking for God to be his resource and help in that time, instead of saying amen, he said, let's go. Because he understood that God was going right with him into what could have been A very difficult conversation. So that's the first appeal. Let us draw near. Then he says in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hang on to, let us retain, let us keep in our possession the confession of our hope. Confession is a word which which refers to public acknowledgement. What he reminds these readers of is that at some point in the past, they had publicly acknowledged Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as their only resource, their only hope in life. Their confession of faith in him is what gave them hope for the future. And so what he appeals to them to do is to hold fast to that conviction that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone was all they needed in life, that they could do without anyone And they could do without anything else in life as long as they had access to the person of Jesus Christ. He says, hold fast to that confession. Without wavering, don't let anything move you from that conviction. But continue to keep that conviction about Christ as the only one in life you need without wavering. For, he says, the one who promised is faithful. 
I think what he's alluding to there is the is to the fact that when we begin to waver in our conviction that Christ is all we need is when we trust him with something and nothing happens. We know that faith is, is what unlocks the resources of God, and so our initial approach in some situation of crisis or pressure is to trust God. And we say, Lord, I know that I need you, and I'm counting on you. I'm looking to you for what I need. Nothing happens. And so we say, Lord, here I am trusting you, I'm counting on you, I'm waiting on you, begin to drum our fingers on the table because nothing happens. And that's when we begin to waver, begin to think we need to resort to plan B or to plan C. The writer says, no, hold fast to your confession that he alone is who you need because he is faithful. He is dependable, he's reliable, he's trustworthy. If you exercise patient faith in him, you will see that he will address your need. He'll come through. He's somebody you can count on. You don't need to panic because he'll come through. He's reliable. He's faithful. So hold fast to that confession. Third thing he says to do in verses 24 and 25 is let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Word consider has a couple of meanings in English, <clears throat> one of which would be a bit misleading if it's the one we took in this case. We often use the word consider in the sense of, I'd like you to think about this, give it some thought, consider it. But the writer's not saying, let us uh, give some thought to whether we want to do this or not. What he's really saying is, let us give careful thought to actually doing it. In other words, to focus the eyes of our spirit on how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. To give this task serious thought and careful reflection to think about how we can stimulate those around us to love and good deeds. Now what I want you to observe is that the writer here takes us one step beyond the place where we, we normally think our responsibility to other people stops. We understand very clearly from the scriptures that we have a responsibility to love one another. But notice that's not what the writer's talking about here. He doesn't say, I want you to consider how you can love one another. doesn't say that, does he? He says, let us consider how we may stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In other words, part of my task, part of my responsibility and my relationships is not only to love the people I'm in relationship with, but to give careful thought to how I can help them to love others. So if you are a parent, for instance... You have a child who is running into difficulties on the playground or in the classroom at school. Part of your task is to love that child and to listen to that child and be sympathetic and to be understanding. But also part of your responsibility is to help stimulate that child to love those who are making life difficult for him. Or perhaps you have a friend who complains regularly and repeatedly about her husband. And every time you talk to her on the phone or in person, you find a litany of complaints. Well, part of your responsibility is to love that person and to be sympathetic and to be understanding. But your responsibility with that woman doesn't stop there. It goes beyond that. You are to give careful attention to how you can stimulate her to begin loving her husband instead of simply complaining about him. Now, it makes it clear in this context that we are not to forsake our own assembling together, not to give this up, not to abandon the forsaking or the assembling of ourselves together. 
That's one of the first warning signs and the deterioration of the life of a believer is when you see them beginning to withdraw from Christian fellowship and withdraw from relationships. And here's one of the clear statements in Scripture that we are not to forsake that. Now, it doesn't say you have to do it on Sunday morning from 9 to 10 or 11 to noon. It doesn't say when you have to do it, but he does say it's absolutely critical and essential that you continue to assemble together with other believers. This is not optional in the Christian life. I remember reading C.S. Lewis's biography, and he indicates that when he first became a believer in Christ, this is how he intended to approach his spiritual life. He would hold himself up in his study every Sunday morning, and he would read theology that would challenge his mind, and he would read scriptures that would challenge his soul, and he would, in quiet and in private, nurture his own relationship with God. But he discovered very quickly that you couldn't do it that way. He needed the stimulus and the contact uh, with other believers. Remember Thomas, on the, on the day of the resurrection, uh, the rest of the disciples met together that first Sunday evening to encourage one another and to minister to one another. But Thomas wasn't there. So discouraged and defeated, right at the very time when he needed the stimulus and the presence and the encouragement of other believers, he withdrew. And consequently, he missed that first resurrection appearance of the Lord. So we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It already was the habit of some, he said. Already some had gotten in the habit of skipping on a regular basis these meetings of fellowship with other believers. But he says, don't let that happen to you. Instead, he says, you are to encourage one another. The word encouragement here, it's parakaleo in Greek. It ranges all the way from comfort and cheer up to exhort and appeal. It says, whatever sort of response that individual needs to be stimulated to love, that's the kind of response I'm to give. It may just be a word of comfort or encouragement. Hang in there. You're doing great. Or it may be a word of appeal or challenge or rebuke. I think you need to begin doing this. Whatever it is, he says, continue to do that. Encourage one another. It says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. By the day here, he is referring to the second coming of Christ. So he says, the closer the coming of the day of the Lord is, the more essential it is to assemble together for the purposes of encouragement. So what does that mean for us? Is it more important today, as we sit here in 1990, to assemble together for encouragement than it was in 62 AD when these words were written? Absolutely. The day of the Lord is nearer today than it was then. And he says we're to do this all the more. The closer the day of the Lord gets, the more critical it is that we engage in regular, consistent fellowship with other believers. So do it. Now, why should we do this? Why is he so insistent that we draw near, that we hold fast, that we stimulate one another to love and good deeds? Well, he explains in the next paragraph that the consequences of not doing so could be fatal and could be eternal. Now this next passage is one of the most difficult ones in the New Testament to interpret. It's been a battleground of interpretation along with Hebrews chapter 6 since uh, almost the day these words were written. And I'm sure a number of you are curious as to what I think about this uh, passage. And I will tell you right away that it doesn't matter what I think. I have no uh, theological or spiritual authority. The only thing that matters is what the writer of Hebrews thought. His words are inspired scripture. He wrote by revelation. My task as a teacher is to simply understand 
and explain what he said. And that's what I will endeavor to do in these next few minutes. If you do not like uh, my understanding of what he said, feel free to challenge it. Feel free to find a better one. But my task is simply to do the best I can to grapple with the meaning of the author of Scripture himself and let him speak to us. For, he says, notice that this paragraph begins with the word for, indicating this is an explanation of why it's so critical that we draw near, hold fast, and continue to meet together. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No matter how you read that, it's a fairly sobering passage. Someone once said that the purpose of preaching is to comfort the afflicted. That's what he did in verses 19 through 25. And then the other purpose is to disturb or afflict the comfortable. And that's what he does in verses 26 through 31. Now, the first question, of course, we need to ask ourselves about this passage is, who is he talking about? Is he talking about believers? Is he talking about unbelievers? Is he talking about people who only appeared to be believers, but then over time demonstrated clearly that they were not Let's see if we can let the writer answer that question for us. Notice in verse 26 he uses the word we. If we go on sinning willfully. So he includes himself in this equation. He says this is something that I could do. If any one of us, including me, were to do this, this would be the consequence. And uh, further, if we go back in the context to look at who the we is, we find in verse 19 that he's talking to brethren. It's a word that's everywhere it's used in the New Testament is used to refer to saints, to believers. So I believe he is talking here about something that a believer can do. I think this is confirmed in verse 26 when he refers to those who receive the knowledge of the truth. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the verb to receive means to take in hand to take hold of, to grasp, to take into one's possession, to receive someone or something in the sense of recognizing its authority. So these are those who had received the truth. They had accepted it. They had taken it into their possession. They had grasped it. They had accepted its authority in life. The word knowledge in that phrase is also instructive. There are two basic words in Greek for knowledge. One of them is the word gnosis, We get the word agnostic from that, for instance. And then there is this word, epignosis, which is a slightly intensified form of the same word. Prefixes in Greek have the prepositions and they're attached to the front of the word, intensify the meaning of a word. 
Trench, in his book on the synonyms of the New Testament, gives this definition for epignosis, that it refers to a deeper and more intimate knowledge and acquaintance than the word gnosis does. So it refers to those who had, who had taken into their grasp, had received the full knowledge, a deep and intimate knowledge of the truth. I think he confirms this in verse 29 when he refers to the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Notice he's describing someone who had at some point in his past been sanctified, by which he was sanctified. The verb to to sanctify means to include in the circle of what is holy. And here is someone who at one time had been included in the circle of what is holy by the blood of the covenant, but then had later rejected it. What does it mean for a believer to do this, to receive the full knowledge of the truth? What is he talking about? Well, let's notice in verse 26 that he refers to these individuals as those who go on sinning willfully. A couple of things I want you to observe about that. Notice the word willfully in that phrase. This is someone who intentionally or deliberately goes on in sin. So he is not talking about those momentary lapses, even those frequent lapses into sin that disgust us and upset us ourselves when we do them. That's not what he's talking about. Some branches of the church teach that even one sin can cost you your eternal salvation, and salvation then becomes something like a revolving door. He loves me, he loves me not. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about someone who intentionally and deliberately pursues a course of action to reject the Lord. And notice he he uses the, the present tense, if we go on sinning. In other words, he's referring to a lifestyle of sin. If we willfully, deliberately, intentionally pursue a lifestyle of what he describes as sin, he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There once was a sacrifice for sin for that individual, but now there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What does he mean by go on sinning? What's his definition of sin? We find that in verse 29. Describes it in three ways. This is someone who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. It's a very vivid picture. He pictures these two individuals out in the field and the Son of God lying prone on the, on the field of that meadow. And this individual who once acknowledged him as Lord now trampling him under his feet. So it refers to a decisive rejection of the person of Christ. That's the first thing it means to go on sinning willfully. To, to intentionally and deliberately and decisively reject the person of Christ whom you once embraced. It means to treat with disdain or contempt in the figurative sense. Secondly, to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The word unclean there simply means common or ordinary. In other words, it means to change your mind about the significance of the death of Christ where once you saw it as the, as the sacrifice that covered your sins a unique, eternal sacrifice. Now you regard it as something which is ordinary and common, like the death of any other man. I remember reading a 
column not too long ago in which the writer compared the death of Christ to the death of John F. Kennedy and to Martin Luther King and Abraham Lincoln, sort of a martyr's death which ennobles us all. I appreciated what he was saying. But he was saying the death of Christ was nothing special or out of the ordinary. It was an ordinary death like the death of any other great man. But it wasn't. It was a unique death. There's never been a death like that. There never will be in the history of humanity again. It was a unique, eternal, perfect, sacrificial death. But here's someone who once believed that, but now has regarded the blood of Christ as something which is common or ordinary. of no special significance, no special attachment to him. And thirdly, has insulted the spirit of grace. This refers, I think, to a, a, a resistance to the efforts of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Spirit in the life of this individual will be to woo him back to faith, to bring him back to the place of faith that he once knew. Here's an individual who, instead of responding to the efforts of the Spirit, resists. He insults the Spirit of grace, resists every effort that the Spirit makes to bring him back to faith. Often that word from the Spirit would come through some human messenger. And he rejects, reacts with hostility to any human messenger who by means of the Spirit seeks to draw this individual back to faith. So that's what he means by go on sinning willfully. To once have embraced Christ as Lord, accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. But then to come to the point where you reject him decisively, where you regard his death as ordinary and where you resist the efforts of the Spirit to bring you back to repentance. And what's the consequence for someone who does this? Well, this is why his words are so sobering. He says the individual who does this has waiting for them a terrifying, verse 27, expectation of judgment. In other words, their eternal future has been jeopardized by what they've done. What they face, quite literally, is the prospect of going to hell. That's why his appeal in this whole letter was so urgent. Don't do it. Don't let this happen to you. He uses the the parallel to the Old Testament. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, goes back to Deuteronomy 17, if he once embraced the Old Covenant and then set it aside by going after a false god to worship that false god, that apostasy could be established on the basis of two or three witnesses, that individual was to die without mercy, without compassion stoned to death by the community. So the consequences of embracing and then setting aside the old covenant were physical death. Now how much more severe a punishment, he says, will the one deserve who has embraced and then set aside the new and superior covenant? Well, what could be more severe than physical death? Obviously the only thing more severe than physical death is spiritual death. Terrifying thing, he says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Imagine that uh, political events were not what they are today and that we were living under the threat of World War III. And there was someone in the Kremlin with an itchy uh, trigger finger. And for some reason, Boise had been targeted as a first strike location. And uh, a bomb shelter had been constructed, which had enough room in it for everyone in the city of Boise. And we were all invited to take refuge in this shelter from the coming Holocaust. And many of us did. Others... Never never thought there was a threat in the first place. They stayed above ground. But some of us who've taken refuge in the bomb shelter get tired of the cramped quarters, eating rations out of cans, and we decide that, hey, maybe those people who were on the surface had it right after all. We decide to take our chances once again on the surface, and we go back to the surface. 
And then suddenly, without warning, first strike hits. And we are consumed by the same fire that consumed those who never took refuge in the shelter in the first place. And that's the appeal of the writer here. Continue to find your refuge and your shelter in the person of Christ. He is the only place of refuge from that coming fire which will sweep away the adversaries of the Lord. So stay put. Continue to take refuge. The same thing that Jesus says in John 10. He says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. As long as you stay in the palm of the Father's hand, as long as you are counting upon the person of Christ for protection from shelter, there's nothing that can harm you. Absolutely, eternally protected. But if you step out of the Father's hand, there is no protection for you. What awaits you is the same terrifying expectation of judgment that awaits those who never embraced the gospel in the first place. So he says, don't do it. Now, it's important, I think, that this passage uh, sober the right people uh, and not uh, disturb the wrong people. If you are worried, if you are concerned, if you are anxious about whether you have left the shelter, then you don't have to worry. You haven't. These words are addressed to someone who has left the shelter, has rejected Christ, turned their back on him decisively, willfully rejected him, wants nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with God's people, laughs when the name of Christ is brought into conversation, treats the gospel as myth and superstition and fairy tale. Now that individual, the writer says, has something to worry about. Then he finishes in verses 32 through 39 by giving a word of encouragement to these people. I have no time really to comment on these verses, so let me just read them and just point out that what his, he has encouraged that he saw in these people a persistent faith despite adversity, tribulation, and pressure. He saw that they hung in there. They continued to trust Christ and follow him. The pressure hadn't let up. It had continued. They looked forward to the day when some of that pressure would ease, but it never did. And now they found themselves considering rejecting their faith in Christ, tossing it away, because if they did, they would get their possessions back, get their freedom back, get their jobs back, their families back. It says, don't throw it away. It has a great reward. If you hang on, you will receive the eternal promise which God has given you. Verse 32, remember the former days when after being enlightened, which is a metaphor for conversion, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, just being laughed at and ridiculed for your faith in Christ, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, that is, those who were jailed for their faith. They demonstrated their sympathy to these prisoners, which would expose them, of course, to the risk of being identified with these. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Now, how could you do that? How could you willingly give up your stuff, the seizure of your stuff, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one, a possession, an eternal possession that can never be seized, never be taken from you. Therefore, it says, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence in Christ, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, Patience, endurance, hanging in there literally, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. His second coming is as close to us 
uh, as the end of our own life, if not sooner. But, he says, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, he ends with this word of encouragement, we, and that's emphatic in the Greek, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, to ruin, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Those are the two options that were given in life in verse 39, to shrink back from following Christ because of what it costs us in terms of our reputation, our friends, relationships, or to draw near to him. If we shrink back from following him in faith and counting upon him, we will find a ruin. Life will begin to disintegrate and to deteriorate and to fall apart. But if we have faith, if we draw near to him, counting daily upon his resource and strength, we will find that our souls are preserved, made whole, made complete. Let's stand and I'll dismiss us with a word of prayer. Lord, we want to thank you that you are the ultimate realist, that you shoot straight with us. You don't pull your punches, but you're very clear to us. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is just playing games with you, is going through the motions, but has no heart for you, has no interest in spiritual things, is considering walking away from you, turning their back on you, dispensing with anything that has to do with the gospel or with the person of Christ. I pray that these words would sober them, bring them to an awareness of the incredible danger that they face if they do that. Lord, for those of us that uh, are aware of our need for you, I pray that you'd use the first part of this passage to encourage us. Uh, Help us to remember this day, the rest of this day and this coming week, that we have access with confidence and courage to you. pray that you remind us moment by moment to draw near to you, to come into your presence and ask you for the strength and the resource and the patience and the love and the peace and the joy that we so desperately need each day. We thank you that by the blood of Christ you've given us that access to you, that you've given us shelter and refuge from the fire which will consume your adversaries. We thank you so much for that. In the person of Christ and in his name we pray. Amen.